0: Before joining indie rock heavyweights The Hold Steady, accordion slash keyboard player Franz Nicolai saw many a ska show at the Wetlands in New York. Not only that, but his early band World Inferno Friendship Society played with several ska bands, even toured with a few. Today, we bring on Franz to talk about all the little pockets of ska that have brushed against his life over the years. We talk about music, touring, and his excellent novel someone should pay for your pain.
1: Aaron, you listen to a lot of ska, but you also really like indie rock. I do, yeah. I and I kind of have ribbed you about this before when we've been in the car together. <laughs> You'll have on your your iPod or your or your uh, your shuffle listening to music and almost all of it is like stuff like the Hold Steady.
0: Yeah, but it's a good amount of ska too. I just want I want to put that out there. Good amount of ska. And I think you probably just do that for me. You're just like. <laughs> oh, shit. I got I to gotta upload some ska. Oh, Adam's in the car. Yeah. Yeah. You caught me. Oh, no ska for Adam. <laughs> I know. I like sleepy indie rock, but you like heavy, uh, hardcore and stuff.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like there's a weird Venn diagram of our musical tastes and right in the middle of it, ska.
0: That's right. Do you, Are you into indie rock at all? I mean, you got to like some of it, right?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, okay. The, the Holdsteady was one of those bands that uh in the early days of stereo gum, they were getting a whole lot of hype. Mm-hmm. And so that that was kind of my my entry point was uh like that two thousand six era of Hold Steady.
0: Yeah, so we got friends on the show, and uh he has ska roots, but it doesn't sound like the rest of the band does. No. And we'll we'll get into that. We find out Yeah
1: how the rest of the band feels about ska.
0: You messaged me shortly after I released my book and uh said that you never were down ska. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever asked me to be fair. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wasn't a spokesperson. <laughs> yeah. But your formative years, your formative punk years were spent uh, at the uh, Moon uh, Lookout Sundays at Wetlands. So let's hear about that.
2: Yeah, I came sort of late to it because I grew up in really in the sticks um, in rural New Hampshire in the years bef- you know, before the internet. So um, I was a real rube when I got to, to, to New York. But my, luckily, my, one of my freshman year roommates at NYU was a Jersey punk ska kid and sort of took me under his wing as far as that went. He played in this sort of jokey North Jersey band called Heft with an umlaut over the E, of course. <laughs> what was your friend's name? Uh, Martin. Shout out to Martin Olson. Shout out Martin Olson. He's still he's still around in New York.
0: People know him. So what what year did you move to New York? This was ninety five. And uh, what town did you grow up in, New Hampshire? Uh, called Center Sandwich,
2: a little town of about nine hundred people in the Lakes Region, right smack between
1: the the lakes and the White Mountains. Any idea how that town got its name?
2: Yeah, uh, it's all the same sandwich. Um, it's it was. Property that was owned by the Earl of Sandwich, for whom the uh, the the delicacy is named. Oh, he also wow. owned the uh, the land that became Sandwich, Massachusetts. It's 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 all it's all one. How are the sandwiches in town? <laughs> <laughs> there is a pretty good uh, general store sandwich shop these days. There wasn't when I was growing up. I mean, there was a there was a general store that was my first job when I when I was fifteen. Pro- I mean, even younger, probably 14, 15. But that was just a straight up old school deli counter
0: you get to the big city and martin says we're going we're going to go to the ska shows yeah i mean he was
2: he, he he was he was i i just you know learned from his record collection and you know he was into what was he into he was into queers and mr t experience and melancholin and uh, and 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 we would go down he we would go down to the wetlands and see those those lookout shows and the I mean, I remember seeing Slackers and laws and Sky Jazz Ensemble, and Mephiscopheles was, I think, the the first live show that really blew my mind wide open. It's like, oh, holy cow, these guys are incredible. What happened at that show? I mean, anyone who ever saw Mephiscopheles, I, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have specifics. We're talking about 25 years ago. I just remember, sure. being like, wow, these guys, you know, satanic scoff for the whole family. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and then... I was in the jazz program at NYU, and my buddy Rob Jost, who was the bass player, the first bass player in the band that I tried to, that I put together there, um, his main gig was for Skavovie and the Epitones. Um, and so he was sort of the one guy I knew. There was a drummer there who was in Harry Pussy, the noise band, but Rob was like the one guy I knew who was in a band, and I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought Skavuvie were were like a step above that crowd and turn like musically they had the, the the sort of the big band thing going and these these mm-hmm. yeah thick arrangements uh i was pretty into that i don't know that you know it became I, I i went a lot and that was sort of my first exposure to like oh there's this there's this whole world here and um and that these these pop punk bands and these ska bands are not are not you know it, it didn't even occur to me that they would have been separate um separate worlds it wasn't presented that way so was this like every Sunday sort of thing or just a frequently? I don't remember exactly. I think it was maybe one Sunday a month. Other people will know better. I mean, like, again, I was like, I was like very much the wide eyed country boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, pe- people used to give me a hard time. I think, I, I guess I had a pretty thick New Hampshire accent too at the time, which I cured myself of a lot of wicked, wicked this, and wicked that, <laughs> you know, but then you uh, after I got out of college, pretty quickly, I ended up in World Inferno Friendship Society, and that that opened up a, a, a whole world, particularly of, of you know Jersey Punk world.
1: Uh, How did you wind up joining that band?
2: I total coincidence. Um, I had had an apartment in the East Village that I was getting that I was losing, and uh, somebody was like, "Oh, you should you should try this neighborhood, Williamsburg. There, there's some people living out there," and I had never been on the I had never been probably had never been to Brooklyn. I certainly hadn't been on the L train. So I just sort of got off and uh at Bedford and in those days there was a big uh bulletin board um on the sidewalk where people would post the the leaflets with the tear-offs, you know, rooms for rent and so I grabbed a couple phone numbers and went to the payphone and and called a few uh and then walked over to wherever it was and and ended up Renting a room from Yula Berry um, and her then husband, uh, she was the bass player in World Inferno, <laughs> and so I, I was subletting, I mean, literally their side room uh, for probably way too much money. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and I met, um, I had met Peter Hess, who was the tenor tenor sax and clarinet player in World Inferno. I had met him through an entirely separate. You know, like the music worlds in New York, to turn out, are, are not, not that huge once you once you start plugging into them. Um, he was playing sax in a band that I was playing guitar in, and I recruited him for this chamber music composer-performer collective that I was putting together called Antisocial Music. And then um, one time I was just hanging out at at, at Eula's place where I also lived, you know, cooking spaghetti or whatever, and he came by and I was like, Oh, you, what are you doing here? So, oh I'm recording these clarinet parts with Eula. We're in a band together. Uh it's called World Inferno. Uh, oh that's interesting. And then um that first you know, Halloween came around and Eula was like, oh my band's playing this Halloween, this big Halloween show you should come. And I went by myself and that really blew my mind wide open. <laughs> definitely never seen anything like that 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 would have been a holomus 2000 um and her her telling of it is that i didn't speak to her for a couple a day or two afterwards and she thought oh my god he hated it <laughs> i think i was just hungover and probably couldn't <laughs> leave my room um and then but i i said that was amazing you know i play i play keyboards and if you ever need anybody uh l- let me know and she immediately went to jack because i they they weren't happy with their keyboard player at the time and and you know within weeks I was in the band
1: when when you think back to that show what's i know it was a while ago but just what's the mental picture when you think about that show so uh,
2: men, the first mental picture was was um i didn't know the geography of Williamsburg that well at that point and this was also before google maps of course and everything sure. so trying to find the venue on south 1st People who know Williamsburg will know that, like, if you go down to South First and South Williamsburg, you run into the. I'm, I'm, again, like, don't don't have it at top of mind right now. It's been a long time since I lived there, but it doesn't connect. Like it, it it, there's a highway in the way, and so I got really lost trying to find the Good Bad Art Collective. Um, But I found, I eventually found my way there, and um, the first thing I saw was they had set up this um, uh, gibbet. The cage that you hang from from someplace and you would you would put the pirate up there and let them starve to death and the body decompose. <laughs> uh they had hung a gibbet and Dan Bailey, the baritone sax player, was up in there dressed as a zombie pirate. Um and and I went in and I saw, you know, Luck Lucky, I think the guitar player was dressed as a he was in a bee costume and Peter was in this Soviet army outfit and Jack was Jack and it was, he was blowing fire and Samra was setting fire to the symbols. And I, sh- I was just, I, I, again, c- kind of like with the Meph experience. I had just never seen anything like it. Um, and then, yeah. And then, and then, and then joined the band a few weeks later, essentially. Nice. I mean, this was, this was also a band that had a three-piece horn section, and we played in suits. So the, well, I would never call it a ska band, other people definitely did.
1: <laughs> yeah, any anytime you have a horn section, people want to try to claim that it's ska.
2: At that point in time, for sure. I mean, we had a couple of ska songs, like Night in the Woods is a ska song. Our Candidate is a ska song. Dan had fronted a ska band down in Denton, Texas called The Grown Ups before he came to, to Williamsburg. You know, we were ska friendly, but it definitely, it definitely right. had a lot more to do with Dexy's Midnight Runners and Oingo Boingo than it did than it did with ska bands. Yeah, and our and our first U.S. tour was was opening. The first band that took us on tour was the Blue Meanies. If I don't know where they sit in your in like within the
0: genre, oh, we claim for them. you guys. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've read many interviews of World Inferno, mostly mostly of Jack, and it seems like the question of ska comes up and he has to clarify that the music that they're playing the is not ska.
2: Well, you're talking about the aughts, which was the time I think of the the deepest ska <laughs> backlash, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't you know, definitely in World Inferno Van was a, was definitely a ska friendly zone um, but there was a lot of, you know, keep keeping it quiet depending on who you were talking to, I think. And, <laughs> and again, like people would look at World Inferno and like, what's the, what's the popular template for a nine piece band in suits with, with, with a horn section? Oh, they must be a ska band. So yeah. what are you, you going to do? I, I think it wasn't, it wasn't so much being defensive about that as being defensive of like, of, uh, or setting,
0: um, making sure that people understood what they were getting into. I think it's it's uh, it's a it's a a different kind of frustration. It's like your influences are different, and it's hard for people to understand. They don't have much nuance because, like Adam said, horns, kind of fun, upbeat, equals ska. But that's not what defines ska. Absolutely. Yeah, by no means. And you, you, and uh, the the kind of stuff that were, was influencing your band was this whole world of music out there that's horn driven and upbeat and all this and this and that, but not ska. Right. Northern soul a lot more. But also
2: again, it's like, it's hard to put your bat your mind sometimes back in the mindset of, of a pre streaming era where people's ears were just not as big because you had to make such an investment to hear different kinds of music. Um, You know, I, I'm just amazed at the kind of things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a college professor now, so I'm, I'm dealing with, with 19, 20 year olds. I'm amazed that the, the 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 breadth of music that they're familiar with and exposed to because it's all the entire history of recorded music is essentially available. And that just wasn't the case. And so people, you know, if you had never heard of Oingo Boingo, or if you're, if all you knew of Dexys was come on Eileen or, 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 you know, you'd never heard of Kurt Vile or uh, any of the other, you know, touchstones for World Inferno, um,
0: you just sort of went for the easiest uh, visual analogy. <laughs> let's, uh, we're going to come back to World World Inferno. I've got a lot of questions about World Inferno, but I have a few other just sort of general, let's, let's talk some general Ska stuff. Sure. You were, uh, you played on Ska Dream. You were on, I think, Pick It Up, right?
2: I don't remember exactly what
0: the title's, ended up being
2: but if, if you say so that's if you say that's the one that's the one
0: it's the one with angelo
2: yes which i was thrilled about okay so that's another. i should i i the first not the first live show i ever went to uh the first one i went to by myself was um or like uh was with uh w- I must, whatever the Lollapalooza was that fishbone was on 93 probably with my buddy mm-hmm. ken and another experience where Fishbone came on, and you know, I had, I think the only shows I'd been to at that point were u two on the Octung Baby tour, and then the that p- package tour uh, with uh, it was like Soul Asylum, Spin Doctors, and the Screaming Trees. So I didn't, I also didn't have like a huge <laughs> bank of references to to make sense of Fishbone coming on stage. Um, but another experience where it's just like completely blew my mind wide open. And I remember me and Ken coming home and sort of making the list of the bands we had seen and we were going to go to the record store and, you know, he would buy these one, two, you know, the Rage Against the Machine record and the whatever rec the Mercury Rev record. And I would buy the fishbone EP and we would tape them for each other. And um yeah, so to be on a track with 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 Angelo was was a real thrill for 15 year old me.
0: What did you do specifically on that track? I played a piano solo.
2: What happened on that was me and Ara, Ara Babajan, uh drummer of the Slackers and ex leftover crack, uh, were working on New River, my record that just came out, uh, at Atomic Garden in Oakland, and um uh Jack Shirley and, and Rosenstock were mixing Sky Dream um uh, in the other room there. Uh Jeff was mixing it on uh zoom or FaceTime, <laughs> you know, he was on the, he was on the phone. Um, and he's old buddies. i like, I've, he's old buddies with Ara. He's a big Slack slackers fan. And I've known him since like, ASOB opened for world Inferno at least once. Um, uh, and I knew him from the bomb days. And so he's like, Oh, Hey, you guys, I'm working on this record. You know, do you want to, do you want to play on it? And he sent over a track and Ara played some, played some cymbal stuff. And I played, you know, I did like three takes of this piano solo, and then, and he was like, "Whatever you guys are working on, send me a couple tracks if there's anything that uh, that I can do on it." So I sent him, I sent him two tracks, uh, and he did some great, great stuff—horns and horns and guitar—and and yelled on. There was, there's one of his lines, uh, lines that i had always loved from the bomb track, "Sadder, Weirder." That I, I filched for one of my songs. So I sent him that, sang along with that. Um anyway that's how that came to be.
0: Did Mike Huguenor uh play he, he contributed?
2: Yeah, he played guitar on a, several tracks. He was one of those guys I moved out to Berkeley a few years ago my wife had gotten a job at Cal. Uh and I didn't really know anybody in the bay area. I mean, I had a list of people that I knew pretty well or like not not pretty well, just sort of acquaintances from rock world essentially. But a lot of people I knew had moved out of the bay area cuz it wasn't it's just not that friendly to creatives uh, at that point a lot of people had moved to sacramento or they'd moved up to the pacific northwest but uh jeff he i guess it must it was either when laura opened for a hold steady show or when or when jeff did um i told him i was moving out there He was like oh you should connect with mike Huguenot, you guys i think have a lot in common you know you're both book people like literary people um and <laughs> so i reached it i mean it's true you know yeah yeah I know uh, Mike. Yeah. yeah. So so we met up and sure enough hit it off. Um I immediately filed it away of like oh next time I do a record. Uh yeah and Mike's Mike's solo record I really liked. I thought it it was super interesting. Um this like indie rock sunny Chirac kind of thing like uh Yeah. Uh um so it's like, you know obviously this is a guy who has like a really interesting musical mind. Um, in addition to being you know smart and intellectual and and curious, so that those are always the kind of people that I like to work with so I immediately put filed that away of of you know if i next time I do a record i got to get mike to come and to come and play on it um, you know and then pandemic logistics being what it was i ended i recorded it with you know a real stripped down rhythm section of of with ara on drums and and frank Pagaro from warriors and star fucking hipsters playing bass and then and sent sent the tracks over to mike essentially anything you think you know go to town on it fuck it up go nuts and and he did like both the 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 squalling noise stuff in the middle of the, the the jazzier track and then these very sort of beautiful uh uh melodic stuff on
0: some of the other tracks Great musician. So you're, you know, you you've worked with uh, Ara for a while on different things. Been friends with him for a while.
2: I love Ara. He's one of my best friends. Um, again, like books, book people in the rock world, we gravitate
0: towards each other. He told us. uh, He told us that that's uh, how he, that's how he passed the time on tour is reading books.
2: Yeah, I mean, I did too. Once, so I started touring with World Inferno in two thousand one. I think was the first tour and. You know, the first couple of years of touring, it's so exciting. You're going to places you've never been to before, meeting people, you know, there's a lot of partying, you're in, especially in that band, a lot of chaos and, and hijinks and um but you know, after your second or third or fourth time at a place, the excitement of that wears off and then especially once I was really intensely on the road with the Hold Steady, um, you start looking for other things to do with your day. Um and one of those things for me was, was going to use bookstores and, and particularly, especially in those first couple of years, I'm thinking of like 05, 06, um, I was picking up, you just go through phases. I went through a Graham Greene phase. I went through an Elmore Leonard phase, you know, these books that are widely available in used bookstores, but are also, you know, give you, you uh, give you a, a reliable, you, you know, what you're getting and you know that it's going to be good. Um. And then I started picking up old showbiz biographies um, uh, or memoirs, you know, sort of old actors, vaudevillians, performers from the the teens, 20s, 30s, um, just to sort of, as by way of making sense of my, this life that I was not then living and planned on living for some time if I could make it happen, you know, being away from, you know, life at home was going on without, without, without me. Uh, my, f- you know, friends were moving on with their lives. Um, and, and, and I was trapped in this, I was in this, in this van. Um, and so that I, it helped to feel that I was part of a, of a, of not that, not that I was just sort of this molecule f- floating from town to town, but that I was part of a lineage of traveling entertainers. Um, these you know these stories of Gypsy Rose or Jimmy Durante or whoever going town to town doing the vaudeville shows um, were essentially the same experience, um, and that that added up to a meaningful life as a performer. Hmm, interesting, but we were talking about Ara. So <laughs> I, I met Ara as the drummer of Leftover Crack. Um, sure, uh, and then I you know I I had an intermittent but sustained <laughs> leftover crack extended universe uh, existence for some time. Um, you know, I played on fuck world trade and then Sturgeon would call me up whenever they were doing a thing, be like, Hey, come play on these, you know, such and such songs, blah, 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 bring your keyboard. Or like if he was calling it choking victim, that would sometimes that too. And then on the the first star fucking hipsters record that, Aura was on and Yula was on and Frank was on. Um and then Ara was spent a, a brief period in World Inferno, I think like 09, 2010, uh, before really committing to the slackers. Um and then I didn't see him for a while, but reconnected with him uh on some of my solo records and and you know, especially as as middle-aged rockers. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot in common um and it's always a treat to i'm always looking for an excuse to spend time with him whether it's making a record or not
0: were you on the track uh soon will be dead i sure was was i ever it was recorded at my apartment you did you play keyboards or was it just vocals
2: i was not on vocals the vocals are sturgeon and terry cloth
0: okay
2: has played i think clarinet or something i haven't heard the track in of extremely long time um i played accordion i might have played some keyboards but definitely accordion um yeah that was jesse jesse cannon the engineer uh and and sturgeon came over to my place in bushwick and and we tracked it there um i'm i've always been a little perplexed at the enduring popularity of that song something about (laughs) the the just because i'm a grammar pedant the line, soon will be dead, our brains and our heads. I just thought was a total, uh, <laughs> it was a absolutely appalling lyric. <laughs> there were other things I really enjoyed and respected about, about the whole leftover crack experience, but, but uh, I never thought that was one of their standout
0: songs. Not that lyric. Not that lyric. And then, uh, so, I know you're you're on the two cups of tea song as well as the video. Yes, uh, the
2: video was made by this guy Nicholas Chatfield Taylor, who was sort of he w- he was around World Inferno shows for a couple of years, uh, and they filmed it at c Squat. F- for whatever reason, I couldn't make the main filming date, um, but they didn't. But they wanted me to be in the video, so I came over separately, and and Nick filmed it and put me on that tv yeah but i had this whole i don't know this was one of those dumb sort of i'm always walking into things with concepts and i was treating it like i was on stage and i had this whole routine where i was like tipping my cap and taking a shot of whiskey and doing the harpsichord solo and blah 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 and uh none of that made it into the video but the result was that after however many takes of it, I was fucking hammered. <laughs> I walked out, and I walked out of C Squat and immediately
0: vomited into a trash can. It was it was not a, not one of my finer moments. So the little clip that exists, because you kind of like are playing, and then you look at the camera and get like a weird expression. Yeah, is that because you're is that because you're wasted? I mean. <laughs> Probably. Again, like I haven't seen this video in probably 15 years. <laughs> okay. So last year you were interviewed by GQ on the, uh, is sublime cool now, uh, con- uh, article. Yeah. Uh, which, which mentioned my book, which was funny because my book doesn't really talk about sublime except to say that I think the song date rape sucks. Um, so I appreciate the shout out. <laughs>
2: Well, your book was one of the uh, I, I feel like was one of the the, the touchstones of the you know yeah uh, everybody writing about Scott for a summer right
0: sure yeah so you were you you said no I don't think Sublime deserves to be cool again and you said that they are the band equivalent of a Bob Marley tapestry on a dorm room dorm room wall
2: yeah. I stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, at, there, you know, it's a generational thing, right? Like people, people get to their early 30s or whatever, and they start taking the reins as, you know, editors at these culture um, outlets. And they're looking for things to, to, you know, people start pitching them. They're looking for things to write about. And it's, I, I understand the impulse to revisit the enthusiasms of your youth um, and, and maybe rehabilitate some of them. And that that's constantly happening. And, you know, I understand why that happens from a media ecosystem point of view, but I don't think it's always justified from a musical point of view. I mean, whatever, like, that's just my prejudices. You You know, I was, I've spent a lot of time in bands with, with people who are five or six years older than me. And so, for example, you know, I was enthusiastic about ska in the nineties. Uh, but you know, hold steady guys were a little old you know, were a little too old for that. And so I sort of kept that to myself. But now, you know, I see a similar thing about myself looking at people who are, you know, five, seven, ten years younger than me have their own, you know, enthusiasms that I don't understand, like astrology and professional wrestling you know,
0: whatever. Uh it's just part of the nature of things. Side question. Where does Craig Finn stand on ska?
2: I think he's basically not a ska enthusiast. Okay. You'd have to, I wouldn't want to speak for him. Okay. I think most of the indie rockers I've met of that, that roughly generation were, were basically ska skeptics, certainly 90s ska skeptics, with the exception of Ted Leo.
0: Good old Ted. Yes.
2: <laughs> Good old Ted.
0: I mean, some of where I'm coming from is that I am also an indie rock enthusiast. And that's why I never understood why my two passions were to ever meet in the night
2: well i have a th- i have one theory about it which is that so much of the aesthetic of that 90s indie rock thing was about not dressing up
0: sure okay right
2: yeah. so like the, the, <laughs> the dressing up for that generation of people was you know whatever whatever junky thrift store clothes they went to sleep in and and pretending that they weren't performing and this is the this is the attitude that always drove me absolutely berserk about it as someone who's like I believe in performing I believe like there's an authenticity in the performance yeah. and and I also believe in like not acting like you're not trying <laughs> you know I'm like sort of an anti- intense and ambitious and and hands-on guy and so these like oh I'm not are, am I on stage oh, I'm just you know I'm not even, I just I'm improvising this song or like oh this song I, I'm not even trying made me absolutely crazy um but i think if if you had internalized that aesthetic to look at uh groups that were openly enthusiastic about what they were doing for example um was just uncool
0: yeah definitely okay so you you were voted by dying scene as the number one punk rock accordion player Mm -hmm. which i guess you still hold this title since it hasn't been
2: they haven't had another tournament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my most treasured, uh,
0: I don't know, bullet points on my CV. You even, uh, uh, you outranked uh, both Eugene and Yuri from Google Bordello. Well, Eugene doesn't play accordion, so. so yeah. Well, he, I mean, he was on the list. I don't, you know, I don't know whatever <laughs> reason. <laughs> They're just guessing. He like, looks like he plays yeah. accordion.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think I earned it, you know? Yeah.
0: I think you earned it, although I'm going to say this is a controversial opinion. I think there should be a rematch with you and Weird Al.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that.
0: Because I feel like Weird Al is a punk at heart. Yeah. And he's one hell of an accordion player, so.
2: James Friendly, you know, give it up also.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, sure. Weird Al, absolutely. What's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> I will say I went to I went to see Weird Al recently
0: Mm -hmm. oh yeah
2: I had never seen him before um but he's you know respect you know I I I interviewed Lily Hirsch who wrote this academic study of Weird Al and it really got me thinking about him in a way that I hadn't before and he was playing in Poughkeepsie Mm -hmm. my wife and I were Thought we we should we should go. This guy's a show business legend. I love going to see show business legends. You know, almost just from a a professional curiosity. Sometimes too, you know, you want to see how do they come on stage? What's their walk on situation? Like, how does how does the show work? And my and I think we were a little disappointed. You know, with caveats, I think it was the first day of a very long tour that had been. Um that had been postponed by the pandemic. Uh, he was playing all, all, all originals, his originals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. he's famously like a, uh, he wants to get it right. Um, and I think my impression was that he was anxious about the show. He like, obviously he hadn't settled into the, the groove of it. And, and that's probably some of the enjoyment that he projects later in a tour. Um, wasn't wasn't quite there yet
0: i didn't get to see him on the the tour you're talking about but i saw him right before the pandemic it was the same concept he was doing the original so this is like part two of it but i've also seen him a handful of times in classic form where it's all the parody hits the huge production i gotta say that the classic form is the best the my top show i've ever seen because it is the most entertaining live show I've ever seen. It's like two hours long. It's got costume changes. It's got video clips in between songs, sometimes at the same time. It's like, I I did not feel bored one second and uh, never felt like I needed to look at my phone. It was like so thoroughly entertaining. Like talk about a person who understands that they're, entertaining and performing and really gets what people want
2: yeah i've heard that about the about the big production show i should i should probably give it another another shot
0: the original stuff uh i I liked it but it was definitely not at all comparable to the classic you know parody production Mm -hmm. i can see how that might have been a little disappointing for your first time (laughs) yeah i got the impression too that he kind of was doing that for like cuz he's got some hardcore hardcore fans.
2: Oh my god. I mean the the fan base watching was incredible.
0: This I don't think this has really been talked about enough. I feel like this is this is the topic for a really good article. You talk about uh diehard fans. Weird Al still has the most diehard fans. They'll go to every year. They know his material backwards and forward. I think he was kind of doing it for them like, you know, they've seen him every year. They they are debating his, you know, the, 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 his different material online. So this is more like a here's deep cuts for you. I don't think it was for the first timer for the like weird curious.
2: Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Well, good for him, you know. I respect I have a lot of respect for him. <laughs> My kids are into him now, you know. They haven't quite they, you know, a nine year old and a six year old, they 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 immediately get it. They don't know anything about the originals. But they've sort of imbibed this idea that there's a weird Al version of every song that they're familiar with, which I, I was ash- ashamed to disabuse them of that in the sort of way that there's like a kids bop version of all the hits that they know. They're like, <laughs> Where's the weird Al version of this? I was like, oh, sorry, you know. <laughs> we can listen to Hamilton Polka
0: again. So we're, uh, World Inferno, uh, you said your first tour was Blue Meanies. Um, yeah. We're, we're, we are friends with Blue Meanies. And uh, w- one of their members, Sean, he gave me their tour diary. He just it was, We were just hap- happened to be in a conversation about unrelated to World Inferno. Because it, it was their last tour. Because they, they basically fell apart during that tour for a number of reasons. One of them being that their label dropped them. One of their members quit. Uh, I mean, those are the main reasons
2: (laughs) that either one or both will do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I was so he sent he's like, you want to read this? And I was reading it. And this is before I was even preparing for this interview. And I saw, oh, World Inferno joined this partway through this tour somewhere like I think in the south or east coast or something. What did he say? I'm dying to know. There was one. So Billy, the the singer in the Savannah show, talked about um, Jack blowing fire and telling the audience, I shot Reagan and I'll do it again and again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He used
2: the suicidal tendencies song as an intro to uh, the song, our song, secret service, freedom fighting USA. So there's a whole story, which everyone's heard who, who knows the band has heard a million times. So I won't tell it here.
0: And uh, the other thing about that tour, I'm curious your perspective, that tour was just fraught with illness. Like, everyone, according to this diary, everyone caught the flu. Um, Dropkick Murphys were were on the headliners and was, like, hospitalized. The bass player was hospitalized from the flu briefly. Billy was, like, extraordinarily sick. Do you remember, did you guys get sick on that tour? I got sick on every tour.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, I'm not exaggerating. That's just part of being sick. I mean, part of being on tour, especially at that level, you're just, you're, you're, you know, with World Inferno, it's like you're rolling 10 deep and you're sleeping, you're showing up at somebody's house. Like, no, you're you're sleeping on a floor. I mean, you're really sleeping on a floor (laughs) and in a room with eight other people. So you're never getting enough sleep. Everybody was drunk all the time. You know, we we would start passing the bottle line around in the van. I'm not saying that to, to brag or or whatever that's just the way it was um to sound romantic um uh and so just you know your immune immune system was absolutely decimated uh and then you know you're in a room full of strangers every night so of course of course you're sick i, I don't remember I, I don't remember any tour being more uh fraught with sickness than any other. It's funny about people's tour diaries though. Like we did years later, we did a a tour with TV Smith from the adverts and he publishes his tour diaries once he accumulates enough in these, this ongoing series. And I I bought the one uh, that dealt with that year. And this was, you know, almost a decade later and his entry for world Inferno was, you know, world Inferno, there's 10 of them. They'll never make any money. (laughs) <laughs> Which was, Jesus, you know, TV. You could, you could have, you could have tipped us off. Yeah.
0: We, we still thought we had a chance. <laughs> Damn. What did you think of the Blue Meanies? Did you have any experience with the Blue Meanies before that? I didn't. I thought they were amazing. I mean, again, like I was still sort of wide-eyed at everything. Yeah, I don't have any
2: anything pithy to say about it. Uh, great band.
0: Yeah, uh, great, great horn players too. Yeah. Absolutely, and again, like a similar
2: like not that there are that many bands who did what World Inferno did, especially at that time, but they weren't that far away.
0: yeah, now you guys make sense together, yeah,
2: absolutely made sense, you know, I'm trying to think of other you know the Kings of Nothing, I guess, if you remember that band from Boston, were doing sort of a similar thing, hmm um, not that many, I mean, people didn't have horn sections at that at that point
0: This is two thousand one, early two thousand one. Yeah. this tour later that year 911 happens
2: yeah we were in germany
0: oh okay and i think not too long after 911 you guys play in new york and you invite arrogant sons of bitches to play open for you is that true it's true in that jeff told me for my book that before 911 they kind of had a little bit of a hiatus they were kind of not taking it too serious. You know, the band was kind of losing some steam and then there was, you know, nine 11 itself had sort of an impact on him, but then you guys inviting them to open for them also was a, was a kick in them to be like, this is an awesome show. We got to play this show to kind of get their stuff together. That's cool to hear. I don't remember that one. I remember them opening
2: for us in long Island. I'm looking at my show history, but that was years later. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I I think that was 2000s. Were they? It couldn't have been 2006. They were broken up by then. Mm-hmm.
0: They kind of slowly broke up. So they, there's a chance they opened for you. They they still kind of petered out with some reunion shows and some. We still need to pay off our credit card shows. I think maybe
2: somebody who's listening to this can confirm. I see here that World Inferno played the Crazy Donkey in Farmingdale in 2006, and I. F- In my mind, ASOB opened for that show, but I could be quite wrong. But that's nice of him to say that. I will say in return that um, there have been in my life two bands that I I sat down and wrote a fan letter to, uh, people that I didn't know, but I just thought their records were so good. Uh, And the first one was to Against Me after I heard uh, Reinventing Axl Rose. Um, Mm -hmm. I wrote a letter and sent it to, to No Idea. Um and the second one was uh to bomb after after uh my friend Emmeline gave me a copy of Scrambles uh, and I was just like, wow, this is incredible. You know, it was the first it was the first record that had given me that feeling in in a in a bunch of years. Um and and I just emailed cold emailed Jeff and um and got a really nice response and ended up playing a couple shows uh with them. Not not in the band, but like my
0: solo act opening for them, sort
1: of thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you didn't really know Jeff, even though ASOB opened for um, World Inferno. No, I didn't. I didn't. Um,
2: I didn't put it together that he was the same guy until much later. Mm. I thought I thought Bomb was was this new band. Uh, I I I I didn't connect it um, to ASOB until later.
0: Yeah, scrambles was actually my entry point to Jeff's music. I um I had that had it had that effect on me too. My friend Bob showed me the record, and I couldn't believe just how disjointed it was, but how well it worked. hmm And how they how he would just wedge in like Scott like a ska verse or just an electronic break or whatever made no sense at all. Uh, and it was like so it was done so deliberately and almost like defiantly. Um, but it like did end up working perfectly.
2: Yeah, I mean he's a great composer. Yeah. Uh, the, the the track that got me was Fresh Attitude, Young Body, because it has that piano rock thing. Yeah, that yeah. Is core obviously in all kinds of ways to my musical identity. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I, I'm always happy to hear people doing that. Um, and that was just it's just such an exciting track. I mean, it was just makes you want to like punch through the ceiling. <laughs> I did a, I was on a, a solo tour around, it couldn't have been much more around, it must've been around that time. And I was doing a guest DJ thing down in Charlottesville, this like sort of perfectly nice, you know, rock station. And I put that song on because I thought I, w- I had sort of come to assimilate that song as like basically a, a pretty straightforward Springsteen holds Steady-esque song with rock song with piano on it but i guess it does get pretty blown out towards the end and uh and they're they're they got some complaints and the djs was like
0: whoa what was that (laughs) That sort of thing i got in trouble (laughs) wow i know that's weird that song sounds so normal to me too yeah i mean especially in the context of his catalog it's pretty accessible i guess we we have a different barometer yes like our 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 normal our, our normal line is like probably way over here and so that's like, oh, we're on the, we're on the, we're over here. It's, it's right on normal. Yeah. So 2002 world Inferno, you guys went on tour with, um, the independence.
2: Oh my God. Boy, have I got, yeah.
0: I, I've seen independence play. I actually saw them play in their la- uh, with Joey Ramone, yeah. which was the last. Are they still at it? Yep. I have no idea. And we haven't really talked about them much on this podcast, but, uh. I think they're a good band. So let's hear let's hear your independence stories.
2: So this was probably the most ridiculous, which is really saying something. This was the most ridiculous inferno tour of of my time in the band. Um we did a tour. It was a U- it was a full US tour, but it was in different legs. And the first leg was about 10 days from New York to New Orleans, and we did it as a package it was world inferno it was the independence and it was the robocop kraus from germany the, uh, this band that were our friends from there who went on to become pretty popular over there and came back to the states opening for art Brute when art Brute was a headline act um they, anyway they never they never really broke through in
1: the states um they were cool though they were they really like kind of weird angular stuff.
2: I mean very much in that in uh, that of their time like suits and skinny ties yeah. and and angular guitars and sort of like if you like the hives you would probably like Robocop sure. Kraus. Although Robocop Kraus had much better lyrics. Uh, they were re- actually really great lyrics considering it was English as a second language band. Yeah. Um those yeah, those records are I would encourage anyone to to revisit those or visit them for the first time. Um but they had never been to the United They had never toured the US before. Um and they were sort of like clean cut, nice German boys. Um, and they had, especially their, their merch guy that they brought with him was, was very wide eyed <laughs> and very <laughs> shocked by everything he was seeing. Um, how do, how we connected with the independence was Samra, our percussionist was dating this guy who was playing bass for them at the time. And so she was like, Oh yeah, you know, We'll, we'll hook up with the independents. They'll headline in the South. We'll headline in the North. It's going to be awesome. They say they do really well down there. Well, that was not the case. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
0: uh,
2: but I will say this for them. They partied like they were Motley Crue. I mean, they acted like they were Motley Crue. Uh, you know, they were like Myrtle Beach people. And this they had this guy playing, this much older guy. He seemed much older at the time. He was probably in his 40s maybe early fifties Um, had this like long black dyed black ironed straight hair, black leather pants. He was playing keyboards and, and maybe extra guitar. They called him grandpire. Uh, um, and, and it was, and they all, and he was, I think a DJ at a strip club in Myrtle beach, <laughs> like strippers in Myrtle beach was seemed like it was very much their scene. Uh you know we would roll into a town and like a couple of like stripper looking girls would come backstage and they'd have a huge bottle of jack Daniels and blah blah blah, and then they'd they'd go out and rock for six people <laughs> i mean it was really it was awesome in in a way <laughs> you know, so we had a three band bill i mean it was probably twenty five people traveling in the three vehicles and playing for crowds you know it it would be a dozen if we were lucky and uh, but you know independents were hard partying in their way world inferno was hard partying in a very very different way um and the robocops were just trying to uh they were just looking on being like is this what american (laughs) touring is like you know (laughs) what the hell's going on here
0: what is a world inferno's hard partying style
2: well like i said you know we'd we'd roll out of somebody's house in the morning jack didn't really travel with a suitcase. He had a briefcase um, that would have like a bottle of something and a comb and maybe his laptop, you know? And so my mental image of Jack waking up in a morning on tour would be like sitting on a curb outside of some somebody's suburban house and just sort of like deep sigh and opening up the briefcase and like taking a, a swig of whiskey. And then we would all pile into the, van and crack open a bottle of wine for the drive um you know we were traveling so also on this tour we were traveling with a nine-piece band our buddy gunnar who was our driver in germany uh, had come over but he hadn't bothered to there was something about he didn't feel comfortable driving in the united states or he hadn't gotten his international driver's license whatever he had come over to drive but he couldn't drive so he was just hanging out (laughs) um (laughs) and then we had these two guys greg daly and ryan Burse, um high school buddies uh who were two of the first like people who really were around who weren't in the band but were around all the time we called them the chaos coordinators um ryan had like Shit, you know, head shaved, but you know, long bunch of dreadlocks down to his ass, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, cross punk, uh, cargo pants. Um, and he was, go- he was along for the ride and he was going to fly from New Orleans to Thailand and then he was going to go hang out in Thailand for a while. Um, and he was one of the auxiliary fire breathers. So he would come along and do fire tricks and, <laughs> um, and he had also, uh, Well, I'll talk about that in a second. And then Greg, Greg is still in the game. Actually. He's, he's gone professional now. He's like a, he's like a, he's a punk, punk rock pro tour manager for Napalm Death, Um, you know, Philadelphia legend, uh, you know, vibes coordinator for the stars. Um, (laughs) Great guy. Anyway. So Greg ended up driving Gunnar and Ryan were in the, were in the van. So we had, what what how is it that's 12 people in a in an Iconoline.
1: in a 15 passenger van
2: 15 passenger van but with the back two seats taken out because it had everybody's suitcases and in world inferno it was like not just the suitcases but also your suit bags
1: wait so then also were you pulling a trailer or no trailer also the gear so the gears also in the van
2: also in the back you're all <laughs> yes.
1: savages wow
2: yeah so, so half of the van is taken up with, with suitcases, suit bags, and gear. And so we have two bench seats and the two front seats. So it was uh, – let me see if the math is right. We would squeeze four people into each of the bench seats.
1: Oh, my God.
2: One driver, one shotgun, <laughs> one person sitting on the floor between driver and shotgun <laughs> facing backwards. Oh, fuck. And then two people sitting on suitcases in the wheel well.
1: Oh, Wow. <laughs>
2: and we did a full US tour this way. Oh. <laughs> um and so the other the other peop- characters that we should introduce here were this group called the No Nothing Family Circus um who were you know it in the, the cir- circus punk was particularly a thing in the 90s and beyond, right? The, there was the Jim Rose Circus and then there were a bunch of these um touring you know, cross punk circuses of various kinds and the no, no things were one of them. Um, there's a pretty good book about it. Uh, I think it's called freaks and fire about that, that whole world. But this was this, this circus, uh, that we had sort of, they were, they were simpatico, they were buddies and, and Ryan had toured with them. Um, he had a, he had a, he had a dick piercing. And so his act was like, he would take out the piercing and he would, and he would pretend to be nailing his dick to a two by four. He would put it, you know, put the, the, the nail through the hole and then nail it into a two by four and, then yank it out and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, then, then he would sort of, he would put a straw through the hole into a 40 and invite someone from the audience to come up and like have some, have some of the 40 through this straw through his dick. Um But for <laughs> us, he was the fire eater. Um But so the, the, the day ten or t- ten or eleven or twelve of this tour, uh, was was New Orleans, uh, which was home base for the Know Nothings, um, and then and then Ryan was gonna and then the the the, ro- the Independence were gonna go home to Myrtle Beach and the uh, the RoboCops were gonna fly home to Germany and um and Ryan was gonna fly to Thailand, um, and we were playing this place uh under a under a. It was pouring rain. Uh, we were playing this little club under, a, under an overpass in New Orleans. Um, and nobody, is, nobody was... called the,
0: This is called the Mermaid Lounge. The Mermaid Lounge.
2: So you know this story. I've told this Please, story a million times. And I apologize to anyone who's... I mean, this is just one of the, one of the great World Inferno stories. I haven't heard it. No, this is for Adam. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was only one employee there, and he had just been fired but the, on- the owners had told him that he had to do his shift and it was pouring rain. So there was no, nobody came except for our friends in the circus. Uh, the other characters included uh, sticks, the clown who lived in, in, in pure clown outfit, like a white, a white clown outfit that was no longer white. Cause it was the only thing he wore. Oh, and he had tattooed clown makeup on his face. Um, Oh, so he's he's a nightmare. <laughs> no, he was a sweetheart. But he looks terrifying. I mean, they all looked terrifying. Like they they had this MC who had a he had forked his tongue with a razor blade in a hotel room. So he had to, he was this incredible crazy guy with a with a you know he was he had kind of like a Bill Hicks uh cross with cabaret vibe. And he, he after the after he got out of circus he went into to be in a, a comedian. Eric. <laughs> Amazing. Um, actually. <laughs> he was incredible. He was another one of the like the great front men I've ever seen. Um, they had a guy who uh would fillet himself on a bed of nails. That was one of the acts. <laughs> they had a, a lady who would put fish hooks through the piercings holes in her labia and attach a a six-pack to it and sort of swing it back and forth. I mean it was this kind of act. Yeah. Um so I don't think they performed that night. They must not have because they were because there were three bands already and there was nobody there. <laughs> but um, but the bartender, the on, the employee got hammered. You know, he'd been fired. He was like, why am I here? You know, I'm just going to. And he passed out on the stage. Do you know why he got fired? No, oh. I that was. That was not my concern. That was none of our concerns. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he had been he was he was he had he had been fired, but was still working, which is, you know, that's just bad management on the on the owner's part. But he's sort of like, he was trying to break down the stage and he tripped and he fell over and he couldn't get up. And he just sort of like, ah, take whatever you want. (laughs) And so the, and so the independence guys got behind the bar and they sort of lined up every shot glass that the bar had across the front of the bar and started, I mean, it must've been 50 shots worth of whatever they were pouring into it. And there were other drugs in the mix and, Uh, and it was pouring outside and all the windows were open and it was just like, it was like the end of the world, you know, you're in New Orleans and there's no other people for miles around except for these lunatics that you're, that you're trapped in this bar (laughs) with, you know? And yeah, we loaded out. I mean, my, this is one of those stories that has gotten told and retold so many times in world Inferno particularly that I no longer know what the kernels of truth are in it. So I'm just sort of telling you in, in, true world Inferno fashion, like, you know, if, if tell the myth, um, but then we loaded out, we set up an assembly line and essentially loaded out the bar into the, into the three vehicles, uh, and then drove to Styx's house, the clown house. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, and we and and all piled in there. You know, we we pulled up into this driveway, and you know the 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 bottles were a total loss because of course these they're all stuffed in the wheel well, and as soon as you open up the door, they all sort of rolled out and smashed all over everywhere. You know, there were f- fifteen or twenty of us sleeping in this in this clown punk house, and Sticks was passed out naked in the in the bathtub when his his sweet little girlfriend was like, "Sticks, are you okay?" Um, you know, <laughs> Greg and his girlfriend who had equally long dreadlocks were curled, curled up, you know, on the tiled kitchen floor under a sleeping bag. So all you could see is these sort of dreadlocks going in every direction under a sleeping bag. I mean, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we, we all got up and, 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 and hit, said our goodbyes and hit the road the next day. And the, the sort of coda is, you know. We had left all the doors open at this place, and we had taken all the all the booze, and so the owners were calling Samra's cell phone for the next three weeks, being like, "You guys are criminals! We're gonna call ahead and ruin your entire <laughs> tour. We're gonna tell everyone what you did. They're gonna cancel your show." Uh, you know, she's, she's law lo- these long, furious voicemails, and of which you know nothing ever came. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's our that's our story with the independents. I mean, we had nothing. Very little in common with them, but we shared this bonkers <laughs> tour, right? I hope they're doing okay.
0: So, um, I want to talk now about your, uh, most recent book. Um, someone should pay for your pain. Am I saying the name right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a novel you wrote. Uh, it was published in 2021.
2: That sounds right. Yeah.
0: Not, this is your second book, but your first novel.
2: Second book, first novel. Yeah, the first book was called The Humorless Ladies of Border Control and it was about the punk underground in the former communist world between uh,
0: Eastern Europe and, and Mongolia. Oh, okay. I haven't read that book yet. It's on my list. Can you tell me if you uncovered any ska? <laughs>
2: in, in The Humorless Ladies? Uh, yes. No, no, no ska bands uh, that I ran across, I don't think.
0: Okay. Okay, back to someone should pay for your pain. <laughs> now, so this book's about a um, aging touring musician who sort of has a you know a, a cult audience, a small cult audience, but the the audience that he has is you know really loves his music, but it's not enough to really sustain a real career. So he's touring by himself and kind of eking out a living um used to be in a like a bigger band that was kind of like local stars that could have had that potential to get bigger but you know kind of fell apart and then uh, there's also a um like a protege that gets much bigger so i feel like you know you're you're talking a lot about touring and you're talking it's it's got a pretty dark tinge about how rough touring life is and how you know as an artist or musician you kind of you're sort of chasing relevancy and, and relevancy is very fleeting. So I'm I'm curious a little bit about, um, you know, I think I feel like touring, you know, it's come up several times in this interview. That seems to be a big point of this book. Um, I, I, so I'm curious about that. But but specifically the darkness or the loneliness of it. Well,
2: it is lonely and it is tough. I mean, it's physically tough. Um, People have trouble with their hearing, they have trouble with their hands, they get they have substance abuse problems. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit thankless. Uh ex- a lot of the time, um, you know, it's hard to it's it's hard to see outside the bubble when you're in when you're in the bubble. Um, and I would meet people sometimes who seemed like they were trapped that they had sort of Aaron Bus, uh has this image in his last issue uh which is called um i forget what it's called but it's about it's about sort of revisiting the 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 punks of his generation and the ones who who made it work for them and the ones who didn't um he has this image about like you're running a marathon and all your friends are alongside you and you're all you're all doing this work together and it's hard and it hurts but you're all you're with them and it's and 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 um and then you, you're you just running and you keep running and all of a sudden you turn around and you're the only one still running. And all the, everyone has sort of peeled off and, and gone to do something else. Um, and I think that there are some people like that, you know, um, who are uh, either because they are so committed to the to the idea and the romance and the idealism of it um, or because they they got so far out that they don't they don't quite know how to. Do anything else. Um, you know, there's this sort of mirage-like dream of of even reasonably successful music musicians follow a pretty familiar career arc, right? You have uh you have a lot of energy in your twenties. Uh if if it if it goes real well, that sort of those initial rocket boosters can get you into your 30s. Um for most people, I think there's a there can be a long fallow period you know, in your forties and fifties, even but with this idea that one day you'll be rediscovered or that you'll, um, that the, you know, the attention will come. You can be an Aminos Greece. Uh, you can, you know, have X, Y, Z will happen. Um, but that you don't know that that's going to happen. And in the meantime, you're really going through it. Um, and that's, that's sort of who that character is. I mean, When I was doing that kind of touring, I still had, I wasn't that character. I had a lot of, I had a lot of energy. I was really, you know, I was putting out my email list. I was like, giving it all for the five, even if I was playing for five people, but I could see, uh, I wrote it as sort of like a, I I conceived of it as a little bit of a cautionary tale. Like this is, if I, you know, if I kept
0: doing this, I could end up like this. Kind of mentioned this before, but yeah, it's like, you tour long enough, you're, you're, you're losing the audience that you had. At the same time, you're losing your ability to take a different path in life.
2: Well, sure. I mean, the, the hole in your, in your CV is getting wider and wider. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I definitely had that experience. My first, my first child was born, and I sort of kept touring for the first year or so. But it was, became obvious that it was going to be unsustainable and unfair and, and, and a little selfish. You know, I could make a living touring by myself because my expenses were low. Uh, but it was premised on volume. I would, you know, I was playing 200 shows a year or more and just to be doing that wasn't fair to my wife or my daughter or or, or myself. So it was like, okay, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta reinvent my life. Um, but it wasn't that <laughs> easy. I couldn't, you know, um, my wife and I sort of, she got pregnant and we we're like, we are going to, I guess we'll both apply for jobs and whoever gets, gets the job first will be the person with the job um and and I just and I didn't realize how hard it was going to be I hadn't had a day job at that point in a decade um so it took a couple of years to sort of reinvent and 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 build that framework back together it's really tough what
1: was that first day job back
2: well like everyone else I got I ended up getting a bartending job mm. you know cuz what else are you going to do
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> um
2: and I I hadn't bartended in twenty years either, but you know you can go into food service. I knew how bars worked, obviously. I knew how to mix some cocktails. My jobs, when, when I before I before the whole study took off, were not food service or bartending jobs. They were they were office jobs. I worked. I had an advertising job. I worked in for nonprofits, classical music nonprofits. I worked for Bang on a Can, the the new music organization but that sort of thing you know people who are in the in the nonprofit world stay in the nonprofit world you yeah. <laughs> know and the the people my age had sort of moved up the ladder and and I I couldn't I was too old to be taking entry level jobs of that sort in fact they weren't they weren't even considering me really they you know even if I would have taken that job which I would have um I I remember having one interview where the you know, I was trying to sell it as like, I've been on the road for 10 years. It's made me improvisational in all these ways. I can, you know, I can, I can react to whatever gets thrown at me. And, and he was like, well, can you give me an example of that? And all the examples of it were just like, you know, <laughs> I'm talking to this Ro- you know, Serbian border agent who wants to take my car apart and look for smuggled cigarettes. It's like, how is that applicable to <laughs> <laughs> writing a, to writing grants <laughs> um yeah so i got a i got a bartending job at a uh, at a restaurant which was actually okay because you know
0: restaurant bartending you're home at a reasonable
2: hour kitchen closes down at 10 and you're home at 11 11 30
0: when you started doing before you, before your child was born when you were doing solo touring you you transitioned from the hold steady to solo touring um, what kind of what kind of um, rooms was was Hold Steady playing? I mean, Hold Steady was at the at the peak. So, like, how many people would you say on average were at the shows? Two or three thousand in in New York or London. Uh, we're like fifteen
2: hundred in in some other places. I mean, not in all. Like, we were still going to like Des Moines and Tucson, and you know, you, you play for a few hundred people.
0: So, what was it like? Did you like the? Did you like the shift with the smaller audiences? I did, yes.
2: And, and, and I'll tell you why. It was because I was looking, I felt like it was, um, that I didn't have to, that I was on autopilot at that, at, by that time with the Hold Steady. Um, that it was too easy to get across. That you're protected by the size of the crowd. You're protected by the volume of the band. Um, and that I wasn't sure that I was, uh, challenging myself as a performer. Um, and that the challenge as a performer was going to be, could I go into a room full of strangers by myself with my weird act and convince a room full of strangers that it was worth their while to pay attention to me? That that would be sort of like, performer graduate school and how do you feel like it went I feel like I graduate I got a PhD in that (laughs) I can really do that you know (laughs) I can convince a room full of strangers (laughs) to pay attention to me even if they even if they don't care for it you know or even if it's not really their thing I can make it interesting for them I can identify I can make eye contact I can I can reel them in I can say "I, I see that you're suspicious of this yeah, I'm picking up an accord. You know, I'm picking up an accordion. I know what you think. Blah blah blah. Whatever you know, whatever it takes. It was it's this, the, the 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 these old vaudevillians that I was talking about. This idea that you can you can roll into Hattiesburg or wherever and get up there and you know, do a little soft shoe and tell a joke and maybe sing a song and you know whatever it takes to get over. Um, uh, I mean there was other stuff I was doing around that time. I did I sp- I spent that year as a hired gun for against me um which was a lot of fun and very relaxing. It was like it was cool not to to be just the the keyboard player on the side. I didn't have they it, it was like a very stressful time for the band um uh but I didn't <laughs> I wasn't implicated in that and they were a band that that dealt with a lot of that stuff very privately. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't even aware of a lot of it. Um, I don't know. I was, I was open for business. Like Ara even reached out for me, out to me around that time about playing keys for a couple of weeks on a slackers tour. When, when Vic was having some kind of hand problem, um, it never came together, but you know, that's, I was just like, I want to do, I want to do different things actually I think what happened to that is, as I told R.I. I was commentable and yeah, I never, and he never asked me about it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I was, I was excited to, and also, I mean, again, like some of this stuff is people who've, who've heard me talk about this time have, have heard some of these, these spiels, but, um, I had run into Matt and Kim, that band, mm-hmm. uh, they were friend, old friends from like the you know Brooklyn DIY days, uh, and they were on there. We ran into each other on an airport, as as you do when you're on the sort of touring circuit with people occasionally. They were on their way to Alaska. I was like, oh, that's cool. What are you doing in Alaska? It's like, well, we wanted to do a go on vacation in Alaska, so we just booked a show up there. It's totally backlined, and then that gives them, you know then we can write off our whole vacation as as a as a business expense. And we use the money from the show to, to pay for this vacation. That's a little light bulb went off. It's like, well, there's all these kinds of places that I want to go. You know, maybe World Inferno, there were too many people to make it worthwhile to go, or like old Steady's, you know, didn't really have any foothold in 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 Europe particularly. But that I could, you know, if if I was by myself traveling light, um, I could, you know. I could go to Romania. I could go to Bulgaria. I could go to Ukraine. Um, I could go to all these places and play a show and use the and use it all as a tax write-off, but also use like the better-paying shows in Germany and Poland to subsidize the break-even shows in some of these more far-flung places that I that I just wanted to go to for the adventure.
0: In your book, um, as, as even though the there was a darkness and a loneliness about it, the character's experience, I feel like you kind of wrote about the the car trips between gigs in a in a more favorable light did you um did you enjoy that part of the tours when you were all by yourself <laughs> yeah i mean you're sensing that because that's written from very much
2: from my heart <laughs> i mean i like driving around with people too but you know you got to pick the right road trip partner sure um if you're going to if you're going to commit to to being in a car with someone for a long period of time um especially after I'd been doing it for a couple of years, I really treasured those days driving around by myself. You know, I could go sightseeing. I could go drive, uh, you know, I could go see Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> you know, I could go for a hike. I could, I could do whatever I wanted to do. And, you know, I could, listen to, I could listen to some kind of abstruse podcast that would drive everyone crazy. I could listen to the entire Prince catalog from top to bottom uh, including the, the records that nobody listens to, uh, just cause I was curious, yeah, that sort of thing. And, and yeah, I, you know, I always drove with an open notebook in the passenger seat and a, and a pen there so I could, I could scribble my impressions without taking my eyes off the road. Um, and a lot of that stuff has made it, you know, made it into both of my books. Um, I think if I could get away with it, I would write entire books of just driving around the world, because there's there's enough material just in that.
0: Tell me a little bit about your transition to writer. I know you've you co writing and music coexist in your life. They do now, yeah.
2: I mean, initially, I had I had thought that I, well, that time we were talking about where I've come off the road it was really hard for me. I'd only ever identified as a musician. I'd only ever wanted to be a musician. Um, and so to, to confront the idea that that might not be part of my future was brutally difficult. And the only way I could deal with it was like, by, by throwing down a hard barrier and saying, okay, I'm no longer a musician and that's just how it's going to be. You know, it's, you know, a little bit like, if you're, if you're trying to get sober and you just like, you, you don't say I'm going to have, <laughs> I mean, I, I think some people do, but the, the, the standard line on it is you can't say, well, I'm just going to have a glass of wine on the weekends. You have to say, no, I, that's just no longer, it's off the table. And so, and so that's sort of what I, I did. Um, I said, I'm going to stop, stop hustling. I'm going to stop trying to book shows. I'm going to see if anyone notices. And that'll be useful information. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, if nobody cares, then that's, then that's good to know. <laughs> then, then I know that it's just been me trying to push this thing. Um, uh, and then And then I thought, well, I'm going to go back to school. It's either going to be it's either going to be I'm going to follow up this writing thing and <laughs> pursue another financially irresponsible creative career, but one at, le- at least I can do from home. Um, or go get a library sciences degree and be a, be a librarian. That had always been sort of my dream alternate job. One of those classical music nonprofits that I used to work for had a scores library that lived at the performing arts collection at, uh, at Lincoln Center. And part of my job was once a week to go there and dig out some of these scores and copy them and send them to members. And I just, it was such a blissful, quiet, alone time um, that I always. You know, my friends who are librarians tell me that it's not actually like that, but this romantic <laughs> idea of just being like being like alone with books uh, really stuck in my head. Um, and I had started teaching. I had sort of started teaching as an adjunct at Bard College, and I I sort of liked it. Um, but I needed a degree if I was going to really do more of it. Um, some sort of terminal graduate degree. Um. And my wife's an academic, so it made sense for me to try to get a job where our s- schedules matched up um, in that way. And where my job could travel with her job if she was, if she was getting, if, you know, if she, if she got other job offers. Um, I've sort of lost track of the thread of the question. <laughs> oh, writing. Writing. Uh, I, yeah. I had been writing, uh, you know, I'd been keeping tour diaries all along publishing them in various forms here and there, writing various articles, and just sort of exp- writing longer and longer pieces until it came- seemed like it was... I had sort of put, done a chapbook of short stories, which was put out... Here's a funny coincidence. by the same guy who did the Sublime
0: GQ article <laughs> that you
2: referenced earlier,
0: Jay mm. Diamond. Is that how... I mean, so I guess he, you guys were friends. Is that why he interviewed you? He, We've been friends for... For a long
2: time, he interviewed me for a magazine. We met because he interviewed me from around my first solo record. Okay. We sort of hit it off, and he was running a reading series out of a bar in Greenpoint, um, a sort of rollicking reading series with a lot of writers who've gone on to, to big things. um And he invited me to. to he did one that was like three-minute rock and roll stories, like come on and tell your best tour story, and then one that was like, and then and then. Uh, one that was more of like a short story reading that I wrote something for. And then he was trying to, he had this scheme about doing, putting together like a a small press that did chapbooks. And he asked me if I wanted to put together a few stories. And and anyway, that's what that was. Um, But he's moved up in the publishing world and and, um, has a couple books of, great books of his own. Um, And I don't know why he reached out to me about that one. (laughs) <laughs> I think, you know I'm, I'm i'm one of his like musician contacts i guess gotta get the
0: gotta get your take on sublime on
2: sublime and but anyway it just seemed like attempting a book length he was also he had commissioned me to do a thing about subhumans that was like one of the longest things i had mm-hmm. written up until that point that was probably oh eight oh nine when when the subhumans um uh all those reissues came out mm-hmm. that's another one of my treasured Punk points. I'm the only person I'm pretty sure who ever played accordion with subhumans on stage.
0: Well, let's when did you do that?
2: Uh, oh uh Inferno toured with them a bunch and and I would get up and do work rest play die um on accordion. I, I think there's accordion like accordion on the I think there's accordion on the recording, but they had never they had never done it that way live.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, um after your time in World Inferno, the I think 2016 or so they toured with uh, Culture Shock. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That would have been that would have been a great uh, show to see. I mean, that whole world, subhumans, Culture
2: Shock, Citizen Fish is is so cool, and I um just the 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 ideal. What I don't know what what the word is. Just they're they're the real thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They and to just keep it so re- uh, keeping it real it almost seems like too weak of a phrase <laughs> for those folks to be doing it uh for so long like that is 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 so amazing.
0: So you one of the articles you wrote, um this was probably like four or five years ago. Um, this is back to the idea of like your um the idea the idea in the world of touring taking up a you know, significant space in your brain and you thinking about it is that you wrote an article about how bands as they, as they've been aging and having families have been figuring out ways to take their whole family or specifically their kids on tour with them yeah interesting it was an interesting article um what was your um what was your takeaway from that i mean it seems like it seems like musicians are in a tough spot <laughs> like do you go you know it's a lot easier to tour without your family but it's very there's a lot of things about being a musician that's disastrous to having a personal life and yes. To, and to be an artist or musician and to maintain your um, personal relationships, it requires a lot more work.
2: Yeah. I mean, so you're talking, I wrote this article for slate uh, some years ago about musicians who tour with their kids. Um, and, th- you know, there's a, there's a class divide there, you know, there's the people, there's the people who can afford to bring a nanny. Um, uh and then there were you know there's been professional sort of touring nanny companies set up for exactly that purpose um and then there are the 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 DIY folks you know the path not taken like i was talking about before had i tried to stay on the road in that way um you know people who have done that and tried to uh maintain and and bring their kids, right? Not not like I'm gonna leave my kids for, for two hundred days a year, but but I'm actually gonna involve them in this adventure. Um and some of those like like Truck Stop Honeymoon or uh, Mates of State or um who else? Uh Fawn Fables, you know, there's a couple involved in the band. Mom and Dad are in the band. Um and they have all these uh so the 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 challenge of dealing with having your kids in the van and your kids at the club is in some ways no greater than the challenge of just being a parent anyway. Um, But you, but you have your kids with you and you're exposing them to all these interesting adventures and, and so on. You know, this guy Hamill on trial is, is a really heartwarming story, you know, about essentially it's his, what what he got to do is, have a summer long road trip with his son every year from when his son was seven or eight years old until now when he's a, you know, a college student or maybe even graduated from college at this point. And just like as a father son bonding experience, it sounds like it was amazing. Mm -hmm, You know, people do it. I haven't tried, but (laughs) God bless people, people who do. My daughter is coming down for the hold steady shows at Brooklyn bowl in a couple of weeks. And she's really excited for that. Um, I mean, it, 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 the, the main challenge up until now has been like, we don't go on until nine thirty or yeah. 10 and she's, she's not awake at that point. So this'll be, this'll be the test. You know, she's nine years old. She's, she can, I think she can stay up till 11 or midnight now. Uh, I know she can judging from her sleepovers. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that's, that's, I think that's in, in many ways, the biggest challenge is like who can put the kids to bed if set time is 10 or 11 or
1: 12. Yeah. Should we bring back matinee shows? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Listen, man, I'm all for, I, I'm 45 years old. I'm ready for early. Sh- I, I love an early show. Yeah. Uh, the UK has this tradition from the days when the, the bars, when, when last call was at 11, I think 11 or midnight where, you know, shows at 7, shows at 7.30, shows at headliners at 8. Um, and they've still sort of, re- you know, last call is much later now, but they've retained this uh, you know, this sort of vestigial sense that the show starts early. Um, and I, I love
0: that because then you can go out afterwards, you know? Er- early show, after party for anybody who wants to stay up all night.
1: Yeah, you want to rage, you want to hang out at the bar, you can do that.
0: After that, get a DJ. Yeah, headliner at eight. Shows over by
2: ten. You can still go out for two hours and be home at a reasonable hour. Like I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why more American uh, venues can't can't get on board with that. They just
1: want to keep keep people there as long as they can and keep them drinking as long as they can. And they they think that people will leave.
2: I don't think that logic makes no, sense i don't though, If the show doesn't start till nine. You know, that they're just not going to get there till nine. Yep. Whereas like, if you, okay, so the show's over at 10, you can keep the bar open if people don't want to leave.
1: Yeah. This way it's just the show ends and they want to kick everybody out.
2: Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure there are justifications that by, by people who are in that business that, um, that make perfect business sense that I, I just don't have access to.
0: But for our venue owners that are listening to this podcast, <laughs> Do the right thing. <laughs> I mean, for God's sake, if it's if it's a whole steady show, you know.
2: Yeah, it's not, it's not like we have the youngest fan base in the world.
0: I know. Can we at least scale it to the uh, fan base age? Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 right. That's okay. The band is twenty three, and it's all their friends that you they can they can play an eleven o'clock set.
1: Yeah, they can go on at one a.m. if they want.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: that's what being twenty three is
0: for. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book In Defense of Ska available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at InDefenseOfSka. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific, indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, was likely the work of The Bands I Like Only Charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying Ska Now More Than ever.